All right. Methodism is kind of a funny word. I don't know. It sounds strange. You know, we're first Methodist church. I grew up in a church that was a United Methodist church. I've, I've guessed my church membership has always been in a United Methodist church. But I grew up, the church I grew up in just, you know, I couldn't tell you what it meant to be Methodist until I like went to seminary. I just, I went to a church. My parents, we went to that church. We loved God. We worshiped. We served our community. And that was that. And that's all I knew. Um, that's what I just thought all churches were about. I didn't, I didn't understand distinctions. And, and theological differences or anything like that. And this, this series is very unusual, I think, compared to typical series that we do here. And I'm dreading sharing this next bit with you because I know some of us don't love history. One of our favorite subjects in school and we're gonna go back a ways in this series. We're gonna talk about our roots, the roots of what became a, Methodist movement. That's a weird word to say. Method. Why don't I, what, what does that word even mean? So that's what we're going to be doing in this sermon series. We're going to look back to see what is, what is it? What, what was it that, that inspired this movement? What, what brought it about? Um, because obviously we understand that this is first Methodist, so somehow we're connected to that. And so in, in looking back and looking at history, I hope we understand um, our identity a little better. And so in knowing our identity, we can then, we can then live in to the trajectory that God has for our future. And so I think it is important for us to kind of self-evaluate and, and see if, are, are, are we still living into that identity of the early Methodist movement and what, what that was about. Um, what we're not going to do in this series though, so a, a little, a little extra attention to this. I'm going to show a slide here. Um, first slide here we go. Can we read that? Yeah, the times are up there. So, in uh, as many of you might know, and here's what I'm going to assume in this series, especially today, I'm going to assume we know very little about the Methodist Church. I'm just going to assume that. I didn't really know much about the Methodist Church until I went to seminary, so I'm going to assume a lot of us don't know the ins and outs and the quirky nature of how we're all organized and how many churches there are. But one, one thing I want to bring up is we're not like Baptist churches in that we're all just independent, local, autonomous. We're part of a connectional church that's global. And so in that, there's a special general conference, which just means this basically representatives of the, all the church around the world are getting together February 23rd to 26th to have a meeting and to talk about plans for the church and, and all of that good stuff. And all of the, the conversation is about issues related to, to the church and human sexuality. Okay, so Pastor David has these town halls set aside those times to talk about that conversation and the proposals and all that stuff. Um, don't need to worry about that. Jesus is Lord, we're good here. But if you have questions or concerns or whatever about what the church is gonna be talking about, go to one of these town hall meetings because this sermon series, we're not gonna talk about that this sermon series. We're talking about the roots of Methodism in this series. We're not talking about that, but we, we want you to be, be aware that there are times set aside if you're interested um, to have, have that conversation and to listen to what Pastor David's going to share about all that. So, history. 
I love history, so I'm going to try to add a little more enthusiasm to history this morning. Uh, We, as you know, weren't here last week. We took a few days. We were in the big city. We had a big time, and we're out walking around day one. We're going over the Brooklyn Bridge, and we're walking all over the place. And I walked by this. I would not have noticed this had Lindsay Kay not said something to me. But uh, that's grainy, I know, but it's a church building. And it's John Street Church, I think. Yeah, John Street Church. And what struck me was, I sort of saw the logo and it had like a Methodist logo. And then I started reading some of this stuff. And the date on this, when this group first started to gather at this site, right in the middle of Manhattan in the financial district of Manhattan, this is nestled right in between skyscrapers, this church. They started meeting in 1766. Now, that year might not be significant to you other than it was just a long, long time ago. But actually, 1766 is the year that Stamp Act is repealed. So the Stamp Act of 1765, no taxation without representation, the beginning of the American Revolution here, right when this, this gathering's starting. So I wanna, I wanna bring attention to that context, that we've got a context in England, a monarchy and a church that, that the Methodist movement is born out of, but then this is during the time when our country is born. So I want us to be aware of that. The historical nature of all of this is really important because as Methodists, we stand as granddaughters of the Roman Catholic Church, The step removed from the Catholic Church is the Church of England, so we come out of the Church of England, and we're the grandmothers, if you will, of all the Pentecostal churches. So it's kind of fun to know. That's where we stand sort of historically in the different movements and the offshoots of all of that. So the Methodist movement really does get started over in England, but Another interesting little tidbit to tease this before we get into the brothers Wesley, John and Charles Wesley, who are the guys and George Whitfield, really responsible for this Methodist movement. We're going to talk mainly about John Wesley. By 1820, just a few years after the American Revolution, this Methodist movement, this Methodist church that has, that has been created is by far the largest movement in the biggest church in the new country, in our country. So how in the world does that happen? And I wanna tease this even more, like what would possess somebody? (laughs) What would possess somebody to travel 250,000 miles throughout one's life on horseback? So to translate that, imagine getting on a horse, and we'll use the equator as an example, right? So we find that imaginary line on our planet that's the equator, 10 times around, That's 250,000 miles. Throughout the course of one's life, what would possess someone to travel that far on horseback and preach 40,000 sermons? 40,000. So so, so John Wesley gets ordained right in the late 1720s, somewhere there. By the time he dies is in the 1790s, about 65 years of professional sort of adult ministry. If you average that out, that's about 615 sermons a year for 65 years, if you averaged it out. What would possess somebody to do that? (laughs) So, England. England in the 1700s or the 18th century. I don't know if we look at famous people in a lot of different areas. We probably not a lot of them were 15th children, 
John Wesley is the 15th of 19 kids. Number 15, lucky number 15. So something as arbitrary as birth order doesn't really help us to understand the trajectory of John Wesley's life. He grows up though as a preacher's kid in England. So dad is an Anglican priest, but dad's not around all that often. Dad's kind of straining the family financially. He's dealing with issues in the parish. He's dealing with big church, broad church issues and, and controversies and all these things. He's working on this commentary for the book of Job that's actually draining their family's resources and he's not around all that often. So mom, Susanna, actually gets most of the credit for why John and Charles sort of end up doing what they do. Because she really has an, an undivided attention when it comes to her kids and making sure they get an amazing education. I mean, as soon as they could walk and talk, they're learning to read and write. They're becoming proficient in Latin and Greek. This is all before the formal stuff. This is all before that. So Susanna gets all the credit for how they turn out. And John gets a very esteemed education. John and his brother, younger brother, Charles, both go to Oxford University. So they, they, they become, they, and they both get ordained in the Church of England too. So they become priests in England early on. So late 20s, early 30s, they're already preaching, they're already serving churches. And in England at the time, it's important, another a little important note in England at the time, as is the case in the colonies, the Industrial Revolution is happening right? The beginnings of the industrial revolution. And by the time John and Charles are middle-aged, it is in full force. So there's a new, there's a new kind of prosperity. There's a new kind of wealth that's happening. There's a new kind of life of leisure that people had never got to experience before. And this is in the context where the Church of England is inseparable in terms of church and state. Technically, the monarch, the king, is the head of the church, technically. There's no separation between church and state. And, and there's a kind of complacency when it comes to sort of the faith, matters of faith and Christianity. Like to be English is to be a Christian. I mean, whether you're not, you go to church every week or all that, there's, there's this kind of complacency that just because you were born in the country that you were born in, you were, there's sort of this understanding that, that you were a Christian. You were a Christian by association. You were part of a group that sort of identified itself as a Christian, it was a Christian country. This is the context John Wesley is brought up in. And he's not immune to it, but he sees sort of how far the church gets off track. There's this lack of personal ownership and personal devotion. And in response to that, Wesley and Charles create a holy club. Sounds like what you wanted to join when you went to school. A holy club, sign me up for that. And what they would do, <laughs> I mean, so, so John Wesley and this group at Oxford would meet for like three hours a day in the morning and they would pray and read the Psalms and chunks of the New Testament. Every hour, they devoted every hour, there were some minutes of the day that they prayed, every hour. They fasted until 3 p.m. on Wednesdays and Fridays as was a practice in the early church. They took communion every week. You want to sign up? Sign, sign up for the Holy Club? So, so in this time, like John almost is obsessive about his own personal devotion. He even gets to the point where he starts to like journal and, di and dialogue, has this like weird internal dialogue with himself about whether or not he kept all the resolutions he, he had meant to keep that day. 
And he's like checking himself. Like, oh, I meant to do this, this, I didn't do this. He even gets to a point where he's trying to measure and judge the temper of his devotion on a scale from one to nine. That's crazy, right? Like, I, how close to God do you feel right now? It's just this weird, this just weird preoccupation and obsession. That's how serious he was about it. Like he, he so desperately was trying to like measure up and he was consumed almost with this, am I, am I doing enough? Like I know this is what I'm supposed to do. And there was this self preoccupation that he had with his life here in the late 20s and early 30s. And he ends up going to a boat, taking a boat ride down to Georgia, which I know sounds a little like a country song, but this is from England to Georgia, and he's coming by way of invitation to evangelize Native Americans. And at the time of, of his life right now, he's starting to really have serious questions within himself. He's doing all this stuff. <laughs> he's trying really, really hard, but, but something, something isn't, isn't right as he's going and having some dialogues with some folks on this boat to Georgia, he's going to evangelize these Native Americans and he has this conversation with somebody like, who's gonna save me though? Like he's starting to even have those questions. And now he's an Anglican priest at this point. He's already been serving, right? So this, this is a, we could call it maybe a crisis of faith. And then the ship just gets in it in a huge storm. And all the English, including John Wesley, fear for their lives. They fear that they are going to die. And in the midst of this storm, as they're scrambling and they're screaming and everybody is fearing for their life. And John Wesley writes, he, he, he thought his life was over. There's this group of Moravians. You can look them up some other time. They're a group of German Protestant Christians. There's this group of Moravians on the boat that are singing in the midst of the storm. And they're praying in the midst of the storm. And John Wesley sees them <laughs> and sees like, there's this peace and strength that they have that he does not have. And he goes to Georgia and he comes back to England devastated. Like everything that could have gone wrong in Georgia went wrong. He kind of failed in a relationship and had to leave that. And it was crazy. Like nothing went well, nothing went right. Nothing went according to plan in Georgia. And he comes back to England devastated, but he, he created some relationships with these Moravians. <laughs> And this would lead to a very famous experience. Many of you, if you know anything about this story of John Wesley and, and the Methodist movement, you might be familiar with this. This is how John describes this important watershed moment. He says, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. I, I want to stress even mine here. 
Like, I, I think for all of Wesley's meticulous devotion, his single-mindedness, his preoccupation, his trying to measure up, and his, he, him trying so hard to be a true Christian, it was more of intellectual assent and never a matter of the heart. It was all out of obligation and never, never any kind of experience. And he finally felt it. Like, even... Even hit as crazy as he's been, as inwardly focused as he's been, as, as so self-obsessed as he's been, if God could love even him, then God loves all people. And this is the key watershed moment in Wesley's life that gets him outside of himself. Like his vision was so inward, this inward disposition can finally turn into kind of an outward expression and he gets this vision of God's love and God's, God's desire for all people. And it's these four, there's these four ways we can talk about all. That's how Wesley's very distinctive in when we think of all of Christianity and the whole Christian tradition. Wesley's articulation very simply of salvation and the call to scriptural holiness is really what sets him apart. And we can talk about them in these four alls. The first all is this, that all need to be saved. So I know this doesn't sound that controversial, um, especially if we've been in church and it really isn't, but it's not as easy to preach this to a people who don't really think they need saving. In cultural Christianity, when you know, you're sort of born into faith and you just kind of assume your sins are covered and you grow up and even in our time and place, like it's kind of easy for us to go and play church if it's all we've known and be a nice person and be good. What do you really need to be saved from? And, and in sort of our culture and time where we're just being authentic, just be authentic because you're perfect just the way you are. Who needs saving? who needs saving, all need to be saved. Like this is the first all for Wesley is there's this all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3 for Paul, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. So this is all a hopeless enterprise for us. This life we're doomed if Christ doesn't intervene for us. All need to be saved. That's the first all. But then the second one, the second all is all can be saved, which is good news. All can be saved. And I want to bring up this passage that I know is probably the most familiar verse for all of us, John 3.16. But I want to underline, I want to, I want to highlight two things in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, the world that he gave his only son, that whoever, whoever, Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And see, this is an important distinction. I know this may seem obvious to you. You may say, amen, this is just sort of status quo, my understanding of, of what Christianity is. But it's so critically important because we talked about in our last series what the Bible doesn't say. There are so many churches and traditions that just assume God causes all things, that God's predetermined everything that happens and that God chooses to save a few and there are others he doesn't choose to save. And that, 
That theology is real, but scripturally Wesley rejects this and says, no, it's clear in scripture that God didn't just come to choose a few people, few special elect people to be saved. He, his desire is for all people to be saved and he's provided a way for us to do that, for us to cooperate with God's grace and accept the invitation. All can be saved. And the rub for us is this, that because we know we have no excuse. Whew, like we're actually accountable for the light that we've been given. We are accountable for the light we've been given. And so we, we don't have an excuse. You know, I don't know if many of you have many of these boxes, but we have a lot of boxes of Girl Scout cookies and I have a Girl Scout cookie problem. And thanks to my mother-in-law, <laughs> I have a lot of good Girl Scout cookies. And I, I can eat a lot and I have, I have them in my possession to eat a lot of Girl Scout cookies, but it wouldn't be obviously for my good to eat all the Girl Scout cookies for the Super Bowl. Wouldn't really be for my good. And that's such a small thing in the grand scheme of life. But you know, um, sometimes the people we talk to and the people we're texting, the people we allow to influence us, us they're small things, you know? But those things can add up you know, Jesus tells this parable once about how these people have a certain, he gives a certain amount to, to some folks and, and those, those that multiply what they're given are, are acting in accordance to God's will. Like they are using the gifts that he gives them and they're, they're using that and they're multiplying that, right? And I think so often in life, so often in life, we have these little small things and we often choose to do the thing that's not for our own good. I do it, I do it. I, I choose to do the thing that's not for my own good. And eventually those things add up and sometimes big opportunities come along and we haven't, we haven't been trained to say yes, to respond to those. We get caught maybe in some bad relationships in these cycles and, and it keeps us from being available for the right person that comes along or we get caught up in all these different things and we're stuck and so we haven't been trained, we haven't, we haven't been equipped to say yes to the good thing that God calls us to do. Christ has said, you can be saved, you can have eternal life, you have access, it's such a big thing and it's so important that we say yes to that invitation. So those are the two, first two alls for Wesley. So one's the human condition. We, we, need, we need a savior. We're, we're, this is hopeless on our own. We need to be saved. We can be saved. So there's that invitation for us. We understand that. The third all is all can know they're saved. Or another way to say this for Wesley, Wesley likes to use this word assurance of their salvation. We can have the assurance of our salvation. And this gets back to his experience at Aldersgate. This is the critical juncture that he, he just didn't have, he didn't know. Like he didn't have that assurance because he didn't feel it. And he'd been asking and asking and asking and Jesus, of course, says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? 
Jesus says, if you then, though you're evil, know the good gifts to give your kids, how much more do you think your father in heaven's gonna give to you if you ask him in faith? And, and Wesley's been asking, <laughs> and he finally receives it. He finally feels it and has this kind of assurance. And it isn't the kind of assurance like we experience sometimes when we're the only ones that know something. Sometimes it feels good to be the only one that knows like, I know the answer in the midst of the class or the office or, or in the kitchen at home. You guys don't have any problems like cooking, right? So it's not, put, don't, you gotta deglaze the pan first. Deglaze the pan, I told you. And to be right when we're right, sometimes it feels so good to be right. We always wanna be right. And so our ego, sometimes our pride can flex itself and, and we get, we feel, oh, I was right, yes. But, but not this assurance of salvation. See, this was the problem for Wesley before. He was so self he was so self-obsessed. But here, the assurance of salvation doesn't lead us to get a bullhorn out and to confront people and get in their face. Humility is actually a sign of assurance. Humility is a sign of assurance. I was in a rotary meeting a couple weeks ago and this guy got up and, and he, was gonna, he was giving us a talk and he wanted to just tell us, make sure this is coming from a humble place. This is coming from a humble place. This is coming from a humble place. Like, bro, like, sort of the antithesis, the opposite of humility there. Now, humility here is actually a sign of assurance. Humility for Christ the humility of our, the, the assurance of our salvation. Humility is a sign of assurance because of who our Lord is. Because if Jesus is Lord, you know, he didn't consider his status, his position with the Father, that equality that he has as something to use to his own advantage. But he said what? Empties himself and becomes the form of a slave. He becomes a servant. He becomes a servant. So humility is a sign of assurance. So all need to be saved, human condition. All can be saved. All can know that they're saved for Wesley. And then this fourth one here is the key, very distinctive one that he, he's gonna just preach on almost in every sermon for the rest of his life. And that's all can be, can be saved from sin to the uttermost. Or all may be delivered from sin to the uttermost, utter, uttermost. So what he means by this is this idea, he'll use words like Christian perfection, sanctification, growing in holiness. Our language here at this church, we have a core value, a core principle at this church that we don't often preach on. Anybody that does starting point, we go over this, that everybody has a next step. Everybody has a next step. That's sort of a nice layman's way of getting at what Wesley is talking about here. That, that God, as we, as we surrender to Christ and we, he wins salvation for us and we start to follow him, he defeats the law of sin and death. So our old self dies and our lives live in victory over sin. I mean, Wesley taught that to, to teach anything less than this final all have been saved from sin to the uttermost just, just guarantees, it's basically condoning that everybody lives with, with the grip of all their mistakes and failures and sin for the rest of their lives. And this is huge for us to understand because Luther doesn't really go here in the midst of the Protestant Reformation and all the ways in which we understand theology. 
Luther was really uncomfortable talking about growing and working this stuff out in any kind of way because he thought that might be works righteousness and we might think we're responsible for our salvation. So for Luther, it's always about justification by grace through faith, but you're still totally sinful, always. And Wesley's like, no, no, because Christ tells us again, he's rooted in scripture, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And so, so Christ wouldn't tell us to do something he hasn't given us the grace and the power to accomplish. It isn't enough if we're reading all the scripture to just stop at salvation. I'm good, I'm good. And, and now we can just go on, do whatever we wanna do. He's like, no, 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 no. And Wesley doesn't mean by sanctification or Christian perfection that we're ever gonna be completely error-free or failure-free or mistake-free or free from ignorance. He doesn't understand, he doesn't, he doesn't mean that at all, but he does mean that as we grow, as we continue to grow closer to Christ, that we cease to consciously sin, Right? our intentions become pure. We have kind of a purity of affection. And another way to say this for Wesley is, you know, at the bottom line of all this is love God and love neighbor. But there's an important prefix that Wesley learns. It's self-forgetful love of God and neighbor. It's loving God, not just because he gives us all the good stuff, and he does, he gives us so many things, but it's loving God for his goodness, it's loving God for his glory. It's loving God for his character because of who he is. And this for Wesley, as Wesley experiences God's love, it opens the door to have a kind of purity of affection for others. See, that's what Wesley was missing when he was so self-obsessed. He didn't have the vision to see the world as his parish. And that's what Wesley is famous for saying. He gets this big vision throughout the rest of his life. That's how he can march the earth 10 times, 250,000 miles and preach as many times because, because he has this purity of affection, the love that he experienced of God, he, he, he had for other people. That's, that's what motivated Wesley that he didn't have before. He finally felt it. And so he could then go to the ends of the earth, to the fields to preach, to prisons to preach, to organize in a genius kind of way that, that would create this amazing movement that would become the largest church in the 1800s of this new country. And circuit riders and all these circuits going all to the frontiers, the expansion west. I mean, all this was possible. It led him to try to cure all social ills. There wasn't a societal problem he didn't want to solve. Up until the end of his life, he's writing letters to William Wilberforce about trying to end the plague of slavery. This, this ultimately is what leads Wesley to do all of that the gospel, the way in which he experienced God's love was, was key. It completed the whole picture for Wesley. So going forward, we're gonna focus on a lot of different aspects of this movement. And I want Wesley's words to challenge us here this morning. I wanna end with this quote from Wesley because as we think about this identity, I mean, in, in a way it's just really simple. It's just Wesley was on fire and just wanted to seek after God's will and he finally got to experience the love that he wanted to experience. He finally experienced it and felt it and that changed everything for Wesley. And he made a, a massive impact. And as we think about our identity as, as a local church, the identity of the church universal, I think it's important for us to know 
our roots, this movement of the Holy Spirit that, that inspired Wesley to create and organize and do all the things that he did. To see, are we on track? Are we sort of in that trajectory as a church? Or have we gone off course somewhere? So I think that's what's really helpful and important for us to consider throughout this series. I wanna, I wanna read this, this quote for us. I'm not afraid, Wesley said, that the people called Methodists should ever cease to exist either in Europe or, or America, but I am afraid lest they should only exist as a dead sect, having the form of religion without the power. And this undoubtedly will be the case unless they hold fast both the doctrine, spirit, and discipline with, with which they first set out. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you. Thank you for John Wesley and his legacy and that we're part of a, a church family and a church with such a rich history, with, with a history that is focused on your will, a history that is focused on your word and making sure that, that all people know that you love them, that because you love even us. And all of our mess and all the chaos of our lives and, and God, you know. Even us, you love even us. And with that conviction, we know you love all. And you wanna make sure that we do all that we can to help people understand what's already true about them. That you've called them to be part of your family, that you made them and that you love them. So God, help us tell people what's already true about themselves. Help us be the light of the world. We pray all this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.